all of us that we would remember to uh, wish our mothers a happy Mother's Day, um, or if you uh, are unable to just uh, to re really be grateful for them and what they've uh, been to you. There's a photo booth area outside, so immediately following, you can go out there and take a picture uh, with your family if you are here with your family. And if you're a mom who didn't get a, um, a rose, uh, the, one of the ushers can help you out with that. And one bit of announcement, we have our four, uh, Grow 401 class coming up. That is a class that uh, you can learn what your spiritual gifts are, how you're shaped and such, so that you would know how you fit in in terms of service. That's a wonderful class to help you to understand uh, just how you fit and how God has crafted you. So I want you to remember that. Um, hey, I don't know about you, but um, I grew up almost all my life working. I started working when I was in junior high school. I, uh, my parents owned a diner, so I used to um, wash dishes. And when I got to high school, I would, I would take my Schwinn 10-speed bicycle in Arcadia, and I would go up and down Baldwin Avenue and, and just uh, go store to store and ask if they need an employee. And so one time I, I landed a job at a flower um, store, and so I would uh, make uh, flowers and deliver them. Another time, I landed a job at a restaurant. It's a high-end, four-star restaurant called Chez Sato. And I became a busboy there. And it was a good job. And just as the kind of a person I am, I was a very efficient, fast worker. And this was, I think, the year before I was going to go to college, um, or the two summers ago, or something like that. And, I, you know, I was a hard worker, but I didn't quite understand uh, what it meant to work at a really high-level uh, restaurant. You know, back then in the early 80s, or I guess this was late, um, yeah, uh, early 80s, uh, restaurants still allowed people to smoke. Do you remember the time, older people, All right? Um, yeah, there's, yeah. Um, and one of the jobs as a busboy, what I had to do was not only refill waters, or clear away dishes, but clean up dirty ashtrays, right? And because this is a high-level restaurant, you can't just grab a dirty ashtray and then just quickly yank it away from the table because what happens is that the little ashes would just fly up and, and land on the food or in the water glasses. And so this is what we were taught to do. Um, take an empty ashtray, cover the dirty ashtray, bring the dirty ashtray, and then put the clean ashtray back. That makes sense, right? So as a busboy at a, this four-star restaurant, I, I was making the round um, in, term, in terms of cleaning the, the tables with the ashtrays. So I would take my clean ashtray, cover the dirty one, bring it back, I'll leave the cur uh, clean one. Take the clean ashtray, cover the dirty ashtray, bring it back, and put back the um, uh, clean ashtray. And then I would take a dirty ashtray, And as I was turning it over across the table, the dirty ashes went all over the table um, on the clean white linen of this fancy restaurant. And these people were there, you know, trying to have a really fancy dinner. And they were so gracious to me. Oh, no, no. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they said, no, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. It was just a mistake. And I just put cigarette ashes all over their table, of course. <clears throat> You know, what I should have done was, uh, you know, ask the waiter, hey, um, maybe we can reseat these people. That's right. That's uh, to a clean table. 
Or I, we could have just, uh, you know, I could have asked a waiter to say, hey, hey, uh, let's have these guests uh, maybe stand aside um, and, and as we reset the table. But what I did instead was I, I took a, a napkin, a wet napkin, tried to wipe it down the best that I can. And what, you know, when you have cigarette ashes on white linen and you, you know, get wet, you know, wet towel and wipe it down. You know, you just have dirty ashes smeared on the white. And well, that wasn't going to work. So what I did, the next best thing was, you know, I can't get it out. So, you know, my, my immensely smart brain told me, you know, what we can do is take a clean napkin and just cover the whole thing. <laughs> and so uh, this poor family, they ate uh, dinner uh, with dirty ashes on their table. Of course, it wasn't even their ashes because it was someone else's ashes uh, that was smeared by wet paper, a wet towel onto their linen, covered in a, 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 another uh, white uh, napkin, and that's how they ate their dinner, and they were gracious the whole time, but they did not leave a tip. <laughs> Would you turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> We've been talking about the question of what is faith. And I've made the point uh, that you, we can try to either earn justification or to be good enough to be right with God, or we can somehow receive it. Okay? In Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul, the writer, makes this uh, two options very clear as to how we can potentially stand before God. We can stand before God as a wage earner, or we can stand before God as a gift receiver, okay? In verse 4, now the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he says that when we stand before God, we can say, I want things to be fair, I want you to count all of my works, good and bad, count my good on one side, my bad on the other side, and at the end of it all, I want you to give me what is due me. And the common language used by uh, a wage earner is the language of fairness for justice. And when we stand before a God whom we believe should treat us like a wage earner, we uh, believe that he should owe us something. In this scenario, God is neither cruel nor a loving. He is a cosmic accountant who is obligated, merely obligated, to give us what we earned. When I was a buster, like I said, I earned minimum wage, but the waiters at the end of the night would, would pull all their money and give 10% to the busters, and so I got my minimum wage plus tips. And so it worked out pretty well back in that time. I, I think I earned about $8 an hour, which was pretty good at that time, right? As a wage earner, a spiritual wage earner, when we stand before a cosmic accountant God, and he is obligated to either bless me or punish me according to my deeds, I don't worship him because he is good to me, nor do I fear him because he's going to be unfair to me He's going to give me exactly what I've earned. Unfortunately, we've been arguing for the last few weeks that if we stand before God as a wage earner, there is no possible way at the end of our lives 
that we can stand before God, demand justice, and feel like we are confident we'll go to heaven. For uh, one of the arguments that I made is this, that how can our wrongs possibly ever compensate for the, uh, how can our rights ever compensate for the wrongs that we've done? If a doctor saves 90 in our lives and he murders only one person, can he stand before a judge and say, well, uh, oh, sure, I've murdered this one person, but I've saved 99 lives, so my, my, my ledger should be clear. There's no way to compensate for that. You know, the language of Romans oftentimes is that of a wage earner. In fact, uh, it says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. If we were to stand before God and ask for fairness, Give me what is due me, not any more, not any less. Uh, Romans makes it clear, then what you actually deserve is death. The other way to stand before God is as a gift receiver, a gift receiver. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There are those who doesn't, um, uh, does not work, or at least he doesn't believe in work, but he believes somehow uh, the one who justifies, the one who can make right. And his faith is somehow uh, written as on the ledger as righteousness. Do you know who is a gift uh, receiver in your family? You know who operates most in that way? The one who doesn't work, who doesn't do dishes, who doesn't do chores around the house, but uh, consumes a lot of your family's assets? You know who does that? Um, babies do. Right? You know, what do babies contribute to the family? You, you really think about it. What do babies contribute to the family? They eat and they poop, right? And, and, and they're crying out to mom all the time to deal with both of those. I'm hungry and clean me. Um, you know, in some ways, uh, having babies is an economic minus to the family, are they not? They are merely gift receivers, not wage earners. And you know, if your kids, one of the kids, things that kids do as they grow up, and somewhere along the way, they go from babies who, who eat and poop uh, to uh, little older kids, and at some point in time, they learn the word fair. Hey, it's not fair, Right? It's not fair. Oh, how come I don't get to stay up? It's not fair. Why can't I eat that? It's so not fair. Oh, I want, I want to play with my iPad longer. Why can't, why can't I? It's not fair. You know what? You know what mom and dad should do? And this is such a great Mother's Day message. <laughs> right? Moms, you can just say, you want, you want fair, honey? You really want fair? Sure, you can eat whatever you paid for. Right? You want to sleep, uh, sleep late? That's fine. You can sleep in the bed, in the room, in the house that you pay mortgage on. Sure. Fine. You want to you wanna wear whatever? That's fine. Go, go get a job. If you can pay for that, you can wear it. That's fine. Uh, it's funny. Um, babies know that they come as gift receivers. Everything they receive is a gift. They don't earn any of it. Somewhere along the way, they think 
they deserve it. They become entitled, and they start using the word fairness. They forget that everything is a gift. The language that is used of a wage earner is, hey, I want fairness, and what is due me, what is owed me. If someone really believes that they are a gift receiver, they shouldn't use that language. In fact, they ought to be cognizant of the fact that they receive the gift when they don't deserve it. In this particular verse, verse 5, it says, um, he does not work, but believes in him who justifies. And he, he justifies, listen carefully, not to deserve it, not the godly, not the righteous, but verse 5 says, uh, he gives, gives to the ungodly. And it is a strange theological concept in, in Christianity, in the gospel, that God justifies, and it is a theological word that we talked about a few weeks ago, justification. Um, it, it, it is as if you had not sinned, if, as if you have no minuses on your spiritual ledger. Right? Uh, but we are given that gift not because we are godly, but we are ungodly. So Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, describes it this way in Latin, simul justice et peccator, which means at the same time, both righteous and sinful at the same time. That we're sinful, but at the same time, our ledger is clean. Jonathan Edwards um, one of the revivalists uh, in American history, one of the greatest revivalists, said this, that God, in the act of justification, has no regard to anything in the person justified as godliness or any goodness in him, but that immediately before this act, God beholds him only as an ungodly creature, so that godliness in the person to be justified is not so antecedent to his justification as to be the ground of it. What he is saying is that um, when we are justified, it is not because we deserve it. Now, in order for us to understand then um, whether um, we are uh, wage earners or gift receiver in terms of the gospel, um, what Paul is going to do after having argued a little bit about what faith is, he's going to give two illustrations, two case studies, two examples, that of David and that of Abraham. And today, um, if you're here, I want you to put on your upper division hat because you know, I'm going to go a little bit fast and uh, some of it's going to be a little bit intellectual, but I hope that you can keep up with me. But I know you can because you're a smart uh, uh, you know, group. And so let's look at chapter 4. Um, verse 6, and we're going to look at quickly the example of David. It says, verse 6, uh, and we're asking the question, are these two people, were they justified as wage earners or as gift receivers? It says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The language uh, immediately says that, uh, that David uh, says that justification or righteousness comes apart from having earned it or from works. And now what Paul does, he says in verses 7 and 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven who, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now this is a direct quote 
from Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. And this is an important psalm. Now, um, not all the psalms were written by King David, but uh, many were. And Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are two psalms that are of note. Okay, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, we think of David as this really godly, holy king uh, of Israel, and he did many a great things, and he did. Uh, he slew Goliath, and that was just heroic. We learned that in Sunday school. Um, he conquered uh, Jebus, which becomes the, uh, the capital of uh, Israel, and he, he historically becomes an important um, a king in Israel, and, and the nation of Israel still considers uh, David a hero, Okay. But there's this dark side to his history. See, David had a group of men who became known as the mighty men of David. They, they were his crew. They were his men. They were his guys. They literally went to battle with him. And there was a list of them. Uh, I believe there were about 32 of them. Oh, no, uh, 37, I believe, um, of them. One of the men listed as one of the mighty men of David is a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. He, he fought alongside of David, a lot of sacrifice, and, and when they had settled a little bit, he had a resident not too far from David. One day, when the men were out in battle, when kings used to go out to battle and Uriah was out in battle, David was, stayed behind at home. He had a palace, and his palace was the biggest of all the homes, and so he went onto the roof of his palace, so he, and he could look out onto the backyard of his neighbors, and as he was looking out to the backyard of his neighbors, he saw a woman bathing in her backyard, and whoa. He inquired of a servant, hey, who's that woman over there? And the servant said, that, that's your friend's wife, man. I mean, Sir? That's Uriah's wife. Well, bring her anyway. He could have stopped, but um, he did the unthinkable. He slept with her. And a lot of commentators believe it wasn't consensual because how do you resist a king? It was a, what they call a royal rape. She becomes pregnant, so he doesn't know what to do, and he devises a plan. He brings Uriah back from the battlefront gets him drunk, tells him to go home, um, thinking that he will sleep with his wife, and then they can say, wow, congratulations, your, your wife is pregnant. But he doesn't sleep with his wife, and he goes out back into battle, so David devises plan B. He essentially has murdered on the battlefield. He immediately marries Bathsheba, has a baby, and there's this rumor going around, this quiet whisper. Wait a minute, it doesn't make any sense. Why did David go um, marry her so quickly right after having mourned the loss of her husband? Now, that baby came way too fast. What's going on? In Psalm 32, and if we continue to read verses 3 and on, it talks about how his body withered away as he kept silent about his sin. You see, he not only um, uh, raped his friend's wife, not only did he murder his friend, but he was lying about it, and it was just tearing him up. Now, let me ask you, 
if David were to stand before God as a wage earner, if he had to put on one side of his spiritual ledger all the good things that he did, well, I, I, I slew Goliath, check. I uh, conquered Jebus and, and made a capital, check. I, I, I really made our nation healthier, check. On the other side, rape, murder, and lie. How do you compensate for all this? Is there, is there any good that you can do to compensate for rape, murder, and lie, and there is no way to, to justify? And so when he writes Psalm 32 as well as Psalm 51, both of these are Psalms of David. They are both his confessions, his agonizing over the things that he has done knowing there's absolutely nothing he can actually do to make it right. There's, these were unforgivable sins. He knew that. And so when he writes Psalm 32, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man, and he's really talking about himself above everyone else. Blessed is I'm so blessed. Against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God knows what your sins are. God knows David's sins. But in his spiritual ledger, he, God said, murder, rape, and lie. I'm not going to write it there because there's no way you can pay for those sins. Was David a wage earner or a gift receiver? And, and what David thinks of himself is he's a gift receiver. He couldn't possibly pay for this, the wages of his sins. Now, let's look at the other example, and that is that of Abraham. Let's go back to chapter uh, 4, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, if for if Abraham was justified works, by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so we are asking this question, and Abraham's an important person. He's a forefather according to the flesh. We, are, uh, we oftentimes call Abraham as the father of faith. In fact, both the, um, um, uh, Christian, uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all considered uh, Abraham as the father of faith. And when we were little, we used to sing the song at Sunday school, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, right? You remember that? And it goes all the way to the you know, tongue out. And, um, and it's an important figure. And I, I think he's a, an important person and whose faith uh, is helpful to understand because Abraham's faith existed before the church, before baptism, before the law, before everything. And so what was the really essence of his faith? What made him saved? And I'm going to use the term saved because that's the kind of language that we use. And, uh, but salvation here encompasses um, uh, when someone believes and is justified by God, okay? There are three things I'm going to talk about. The moment of his salvation, the timing of his salvation, the essence of his salvation. The moment of his salvation, look at chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, now let me give you uh, the context, because uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 3 is a, um, is a reference to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, this is important. 
Genesis 15:6 is a direct quote of what happened. And let me give you the context of Genesis 15:6. Now, Abraham was called by God in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now, go forth from here. I will make you a father of nations, etc. I will make you, you know, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to many. And so he leaves his homeland and he wanders on. He had these moments of faith and moments of um, lack of faith. Um, uh, there was a war that happens in Genesis chapter 14. He wins back his, his nephew Lot. Uh, he has a little encounter with King Melchizedek. And in chapter 15, it was um, in the evening, and, and uh, the Lord prompts him to go out of his tent. So in the cool of the night, he goes out of his tent, and there's no light pollution. So he looked up into the sky, and he saw just myriads of stars, millions of stars, and the Lord reminds him, remember that promise that I made you in Genesis chapter 12, that you will have offsprings, many, many offsprings, great, great grandchildren. You'll have millions of them. Remember that? And Abraham, but Lord, I'm old. I'm an old man now. My wife, she's, she's old. She, she's past menopause. She biologically cannot have children anymore. I, I, you know, it's a nice thought, God, but I, I don't think so. And, and the Lord reiterates his promise. Look toward the heaven and, the, and number the stars if you are able to number them. He said, so shall your offspring be. And in Genesis chapter 5, we are told, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, believed the Lord. God said, this is what shall be. And Abraham believed. The Hebrew word, listen carefully, is aman. Aman. It means I'm in agreement. Aman. What does it sound like? Amen. That's where we get the English word amen. Aman. The Lord said, this is what will happen. And Abraham looked up into the sky. And it wasn't like this emotional um, like moment where there's this music and there was an altar call and, and uh, this fancy like happening. He was just by himself. And, but that, at that moment, he said, Aman, amen, I believe. You know, we're, blood, we're fortunate because we know exactly the moment in which Abraham was saved. It was this particular moment. And he, he believed in the Lord. He, he aman, amen, the words of the Lord. And it said, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what the Lord does, he took that amen and said, okay, you will be counted as righteous now. The word um, in, in Greek is, is what we're looking at. Uh, means that it was credited to, to him, confer a status that was not there before, logizomai. It, it it's giving you credit for something you, don't, you didn't do or you don't deserve that you didn't put there. You know, um, you know imagine that you have a daughter at, at, in college up in Berkeley or something, a place like that. And... Um, you know, because it's your child, and although she got scholarships and grants and loans and such, um, you know, periodically, uh, you know, she needs uh, mom and dad's money. And because she's young, you have a joint checking account, and you're constantly checking her checking account. 
she has a budget and everything, but you're, you're seeing how she's doing, and you know when the tuition is due, and you know when she has to pay rent, and you're, you're monitoring her account, and um, some bills are due, and you look at her account, and you realize she only has like $26, and she has hundreds of dollars of payments due soon. And so mom and dad, what do you do, right? Um, she stands before you not as a wage earner, but as a gift receiver, does she not? And so mom and dad uh, puts money into her account. And so uh, $26 becomes, you know, $10,000 or $5,000 or whatever it is. And as far as the world looks at, when the world looks at her, as when, when her creditors look at her, she has been credited with that, those thousands of dollars, but it's not earned. It was counted toward her. It was conferred to her. Douglas Moo, the fine commentator, says that the crediting of Abraham's faith as righteous means to account him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. At that moment of salvation, uh, what was granted to Abraham was not an inherent righteousness, but some, a righteousness that was given to him. Now, let's look at the timing of his salvation, timing of his salvation. This may not seem important to you, but uh, if you are here as an engineer, and like, I know you have some, we have some STEMS people, right? Yes, amen? I don't know. Um, you know, I got a long time ago when I uh, got Mercury... Um, I don't know why I'm saying this, but when I got auto insurance, they had a professional discount, and they had a discount for engineers. Um, and so I, I had to show them my UCLA engineering degree, and I got a discount. And um, I think that the world thinks, that, or at least the insurance uh, industry thinks that engineers are safer drivers. So there you go, okay? Um, now, where was I going with this? Okay. This may not seem important, but timing is very important, and let me explain why, okay? The Jews, as well as all of us, in some way believe that in order to be found justified before God, that we have to have these requisites accomplished, that we have to earn like as wage earners. So that only when we've accomplished certain things, that only when we're lovable enough, good enough, are worthy of being forgiven, okay, that we are forgiven. Does that make sense? Right, and so uh, some of the ways in which the Jewish Christians especially believe that you have to be worthy enough to be forgiven or to be justified is through circumcision and keeping the law. And so the engineers in this room or the lawyers in this room or the logical people in this room should ask this question that, that may not seem like an important question, but it is, I believe, an important question. If circumcision, for example, is a requisite to salvation, then circumcision should happen before or after salvation, right? If it's a requisite for salvation, then circumcision happened before salvation, should it not, right? Now, let's look at verses 9 and 10. I love Paul. I think he's such a logical person. I think when we're in heaven, we're going to, you know, like talk logic and, and, and work on our Microsoft Excel sheets together, okay? Um, verses 9 and 10. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And Paul asks this question. 
It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now, let me explain to you. Okay. Uh, that moment of salvation happened in, chap- in Genesis chapter what? 15, right? Uh, uh, Abraham was circumcised in Genesis chapter 17, some 20-some years later. And so the Jews, uh, even today, believe that circumcision is a requisite, an important component that uh, they can't imagine a Jewish person being saved apart from circumcision. But Paul has just made the argument now, hey, look, but your father of faith, was he saved in, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6? And the Jews would all say, yes, it says so. It's very clear. Was he circumcised? They say, oh, no. Then, what does circumcision really do then? In chapter 4, verse 11, continue. He received a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Circumcision then uh, is a sign much like a wedding ring is to be a symbol or a sign uh, of the fact that two people are married. A wedding ring, a, a ring on the left hand does not automatically make you married. It is just a sign, an outward symbol that you are married. Now, um, the second thing that he talks about is the law. Now, the Jews not only believe that one must be circumcised, but one must keep the law in order to be worthy enough. And in particular, they believed in the Mosaic law or the laws given by a prophet by the name of Moses, which includes the Ten Commandments, like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not um, you know, um, uh, covet your uh, neighbor's wife and things of that nature, okay? Now, uh, in verse four, 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir to the world, of the world, um, did not come through the law, though, but through righteousness of faith. And he makes the argument, no, it wasn't through the law, and one of the reasons why it could not have come through the law is because, listen carefully, as uh, much as the Jews believed in the Mosaic law, Abraham had absolutely no knowledge of the Mosaic law because of the Mosaic laws came hundreds of years later. I don't know if you've ever really interacted with a, an Orthodox Jew, someone who is like religiously very Jewish. I remember a long time ago, uh, my Younger daughter had a friend, a Jewish friend at preschool, and we invited her over for a little play, you know, date. And so she came over there playing, and uh, we knew she was Jewish. Um, and so we asked, hey, do you, do you want snacks? Do you want to eat something? And yes. Can you eat, like, chicken nuggets? We weren't quite sure, you know, how kosher, unkosher that was. She said, yeah, I can eat chicken, chicken nuggets from, you know, Costco. So we we were heating it up, but she said, oh, but please don't put cheese on the same plate as the chicken nuggets, okay? Um, now, you know, you may be confused as to why she was brought up, never put chicken nuggets on the same plate as cheese, but I kind of understood because there's this odd uh, verse in the Mosaic Law which states, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. A kid is a term for a baby goat, don't cook a baby goat 
in the milk of the mother's goat, uh, milk. Does that make, make sense? It's an odd little, little uh, verse or a, a, a law that exists in, in, the, in the nation of Israel. And so, um, and there was probably a reason behind it all, but uh, you know, Jewish scholars along the way you know, debated, like, okay, so we're not going to boil, who's gonna, I, we're not going to, we weren't going to boil, I, we're not going to like kill a kid or a baby goat and then um, take the milk of the mother and boil it there, that, you know, we weren't going to intentionally do that, but the, you know, they started debating and asking questions, well, what happens if we, got, if we had meat from um, the baby goat and later on, we somehow mix it together and we heat it up in a microwave. Oh, what happens if we take the, the, uh, the mother's milk and we, uh, we pasteurize it and it becomes cheese? And what happens if we take the cheese and the, the goat meat and, and make a little sandwich and heat it up in the microwave? And they realize, no, no, we'll be breaking that particular law, so we can't do that. So Orthodox Jews have said then one of the ways that we can make sure that we don't break this particular odd small piece of the Mosaic law is that we shall not put on the same table or plate meat and dairy products. So if you go to an uh, ultra-Orthodox restaurant, they, they won't oftentimes serve any kind of dairy stuff like butter and stuff like that. So this little girl in our home said, you know, don't put cheese on the same plate as my uh, chicken nuggets. She was expressing the law that she grew up with. Now, um, this may sound a little bit sacrilegious, but if Abraham came over to our home and we were serving a meal to the little girl, the father of faith would say to the little girl, chill, what's wrong with that? <laughs> right? Who told you to do that? Well, my parents said it was from the law. What law? You know, let's, let's, let's have some bacon. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mohawk my head and I'm going to mow my lawn on Saturday morning because that's the best time to mow lawns. You know what uh, a lot of the Jews are going to be surprised when they go to heaven, Jewish Christians, is how Gentile Abraham is going to feel like to them because Abraham lived his whole life without the law. And, what is, and, and this is not, you know, I'm not knocking on the Jews, by the way, but trying to make a point uh, according to the, ar the argument that Paul is making, that if someone is uh, saved on the basis of circumcision or on the uh, basis of keeping the law and Abraham was the father of, of faith for them, uh, unfortunately, that argument fails because Abraham, the faith of father, broke both of those. He was not saved on the basis of those. Okay? Now, uh, we're told, rather, verse 16, that is why it depends not on the law, but on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all this offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is a father of us all. Okay? Now, let's go to the essence of salvation, essence of salvation. So what was the essence of Abraham's salvation? Like, what caused him to be someone that God would say, you know, I, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to reckon, I'm going to count righteousness. I'm going to take your spiritual ledger and I'm going to wipe away your sins and credit you with my righteousness. Okay? You know, did he have exceptional character? Now, of all the people that lived, was Abraham someone so exceptional? 
so, like high moral character. Now, I have news for you. Um, Abraham received this calling in Genesis chapter 12, and we find out about a few things along the way. Uh, in Genesis chapter 20, we find out that he, his wife, Sarai, is actually his half-sister. Biologically, same father, uh, biologically different mother. So he was, she was his half-sister, and apparently back then, uh, they married people like that. You know, they married half-sisters, half-siblings, and you know, we think it's, oh, it's kind of weird, but apparently it was okay then, so I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not going don't, to, I don't know if I'm going to feel really uncomfortable when I meet Mrs. Abraham. Like, oh my goodness, I just, uh, nice to meet you, Mrs. Oh, I'm his sister. I mean, I don't know. Okay? <clears throat> but this is how uh, amazing Abraham was. We think that he's a person of faith. Uh, right after having received the call in Genesis chapter 12, uh, they do some, you know, traveling. And then there was a famine, so they go down to a place called Egypt. And um, in chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, that's her other name, um, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. He, you know, he, he looks at her in the eyes, honey, I know you're a woman. You're, you're just so beautiful in appearance. You're just beautiful. He's like, oh, oh, that's all nice of you. Oh, okay. And, and you know, she's like all like flattered. And when the Egyptians see, see you, uh, they will say, uh, "This." Um, they will say, "This is his wife," and they're gonna see you and look at me, and they're gonna think that you're my wife. And, and, and she's like, yeah, so, and you're going to be really proud of me, right? Um, and, and Abraham continues to say, uh, say to his wife, and then they will kill me. <laughs> but they will let you live. Because so they're going to see how beautiful you are, how hot you are, and because they're going to want you, so they're going to kill me to get you. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Did you see what he just did? He's telling his wife, I want you to half lie because uh, they may kill me. But he's not necessarily trying to spare her from being raped or being taken captive. Because if, if she says, yeah, this is my brother, yeah, they're going to assume that he's basically saying, yeah, they, they can have you. But at least they'll let me live. Um, we, we think Father Abraham had many sons. That's the kind of father we had. A, a high moral value, a high integrity, high family man? No, absolutely not. If we think that he was deemed righteous, counted righteous because of his character, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Or maybe the other thought is perhaps it was because he had great faith. You know, the apex of his faith it was probably the day when after, you know, having waited so long, he got a son, Isaac, a biological son with Sarai. And, and as Isaac was growing up, God said, you know, I need, I need Isaac. And so he takes him up, binds him, and he's supposed to, like, slay Isaac. Well, that's incredible. You can't do that. And he does that believing somehow God's going to still somehow I don't know, revive Isaac or something. He doesn't know. But uh, did that happen? And, and, and if, some, if someone were to ask us, when did Abraham uh, become justified 
on the basis of his faith, we might all guess it was at that particular moment when Abraham expressed his faith in his apex. But that moment occurred years and years later in Genesis chapter 22, not Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's faith was still small as a mustard seed. What did Abraham really do in order to earn salvation? And and the answer is this. He was not a, a, a wage earner, but he was a gift receiver. He didn't do anything. He wasn't better, more moral than anyone else. His faith wasn't that deep and that thorough. His faith was that of a mustard seed. The only thing that he had was this. That he knew he was old and decrepit. He knew his wife was uh, beyond menopause and she was biologically unable to have children. But God took him out into the cold of the night, had him look up into the sky and says, look at the, uh, the millions of stars you see. You'll have as many kids. And Abraham at that moment said, Aman. I will choose to believe the impossible because you said so. And that's what faith was. In verse 18, in hope, He believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. Do you know what hope is? Um, Do you you know what faith is, according to Abraham? It's it's choosing to believe because God said so, even though it it doesn't make sense, although it seems impossible. A question that, that I used to ask, and I didn't know it was from this, it was from the evangelism explosion in James Kennedy, and the question goes something like this. If you were to die today, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? It's kind of a weird question, but still, it, it gets to the point. Why should I let you into heaven? A good church-going uh, person at, you know, at Living Hope, you might say that's because I've tried my best to live a good life. This is a, a salvation by works. This is a, the this, this is the thinking of a spiritual wage earner because I've, I've done my best and I deserve to go there. You know, living hope, we're filled with people who are hard workers. And you want to be treated fair and you may stand before God and you may say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I, I, I tried my best to, you know, take care of my kids and take care of my parents in their old age. But we've been learning that, that we're just not good enough. Um, others of you may say, well, um, because I believe in God and try to do his will. Uh, what, what you say, I have faith and I try to do good. It's like the Catholic uh, faith um, who says that you have to believe in Jesus to be forgiven, but at the same time be good enough. But that's still in some ways uh, standing uh, before God as a wage earner. Or others, and many of the people here may think this way, because I believe in God with all my heart. And we think that that is the right answer, but if we're not careful that what we can do is that we can make salvation by faith as work. We can make faith a kind of a work. So if I believe hard enough that I can be saved, if you really examine the faith of Abraham, look at it, he, he didn't know a lot. In fact, he had less knowledge, less biblical knowledge than all of us here. He, he didn't do good in so many ways. 
he wasn't necessarily more moral, and his faith wasn't that deep. There were times he wavered. But in that particular moment, in that cool of the night, he chose to believe the word of God. In that one area, I I just want you to believe. Believe in me and my words for you. And you might be here today, and, and, and this Christian thing may be something foreign to you. And you're wondering, you know, I, I, this, this pastor, he's, yeah, he's talking about things I've never heard of. I don't, he's too confusing for me. Um, I want you to know that the pang inside of you that sometimes tells you that you're inadequate, that tells you that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of my life, I don't know if I can stand before whatever that exists and, and with a clear conscience say, I deserve, I've earned. Something inside of you tells you that, I'm, that my life is not something I can control. And I want you to know today that, uh, that what happened with uh, Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, what Paul told us in uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 3. In Romans 4, 23, he tells us, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Those are hard, difficult, big words. But he said this was all written for us so that we would know that our sins could be forgiven, not counted against us, but the righteousness, the goodness of God. Has be, can be put on our spiritual ledger for us. For those of you who have been in the church who are Christians, I want you to know that, that God wants you to live a good life according to his will, according to the words of God, but at the same time, never ever believe that we can come before God and say, I, I want things to be fair because we don't deserve really any of what we have. But all that we have, all that we've been given, especially our salvation, is something that's been received by faith, by grace. So I'm so grateful for that. You know, um, we're going to end this particular portion, uh, but I want to bring someone up. um, And um, 